All right. Well, if you would, take your uh, Bible and open to the book of Colossians. Colossians is located in the New Testament, part of Paul's letters. And so if you turn kind of toward the end of your Bible, you'll find the book of Colossians. Feel free to take out your phone as well. If you have a, a Bible app on there, if you have access to God's Word through, through your phone, bring that out as well. And we're going to look at a passage of Scripture that we looked at in part two weeks ago. And we're going to finish it by kind of looking at the second half of that portion Today is the last week in our session or our series of sermons called Who is God? We've been looking at what does it mean for us to refer to God? Who is God? In a world in which even people that want nothing to do with church, people who maybe you would look at their lives and say they don't seem particularly godly, they would still reference I believe in God. And when we say that, what do we mean? And so we've been tracking that over the last several months. This week will be the last sermon in this series. Beginning next week, we're going to begin looking at the book of Psalms. If we say we believe in this God that we've talked about, what does it look like to respond to him? And the book of Psalms is full of examples and full of truth about what it looks like to respond to the great God we say we believe in. Psalms is full of this incredibly powerful emotional material. Sometimes... The writers of the Psalms will say things that we think, you can't say that in church. Is anybody really supposed to say that about God? But, but we have to deal with those passages, and so that's where we're going to begin to go uh, next week, studying, studying those for several weeks in, in August and in through early September. Let's do one other thing as we move into the sermon time. On Tuesday of this week, we are having elections, and, and several elections, both local and expanding far beyond that. And we just want to take a time to pray, to pray for our responsibility in participating in government. Even though as Christians, we don't look to politics to be the savior of the world. That is not the purpose of politics. Jesus Christ is the savior. We don't look to politicians or to politics, we do have an opportunity and a responsibility and a gift to participate in that. And so we want to pray about that, pray for those who are involved in that. As churches, we have to take very careful roles in the way that we approach this, not promoting anyone, but just saying, let's engage. Let's be involved in our world and let's be involved there as Christians coming at this with prayer and coming at this with obedience to God's word. So we're going to take just a moment after we read the scripture and we're going to pray together and then we'll begin to look at this passage. So let's stand together just for a moment for the reading of God's word. Beginning in Colossians chapter 1 and let's start in verse 15 and we'll read down through verse 23. The Son is the image of Of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things were created by him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And then verse 18 is where we're going to begin to pick up today. He is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, 
and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior, but now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight, without blemish and free from accusation, if you continue in your faith, established and firm, not moved from the hope held out in the gospel. This is the gospel that you heard and that has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven, and of which I, Paul, have become a servant. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the truth and the power found in your word. We thank you for the hope, the good news that comes through Jesus Christ. That's the reason we gather. That's the hope that leads us to go to work, the hope that leads us to be engaged in politics, the hope that leads us to play and have fun and enjoy the lives that you've laid out for us. And God, we pray that we would do that always in reference to who Christ is and what he's done. God, we pray for the elections that are happening this Tuesday. God, for the decisions that will be made that will impact our communities and and the regions in which we live. God, we pray for those who are engaging Um, And this as candidates for those who will be voting. God, we know that politics can be a great gift when it's used for good, but it's a terrible God. And so we look to you as God. We look to you as the one who is sovereign, the one who is all-powerful, the one who is victorious. And God, we pray that all things that happen, God, would be done for your glory. And God, would you lead us together as your people. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. Have you ever been in the midst of an experience that you felt like would never end? And please don't say a sermon. If you say a sermon, there'll be a time of repentance at the uh, the end of the service. No, I've probably been in the middle of some of my sermons that I thought would, would never end. But these experiences, maybe you were on a car trip with young children, and you thought, this will literally never end. We will never make it. We were in Oklahoma visiting family. We were traveling back on Friday, and our kids were incredible in the car. We made record time coming back, but there were moments on I-49 and I-10 when you thought this will literally never end. Sometimes when you're in school, you think this will never end, and your parents think this will never end. You'll never be finished with school. I feel that way with parenting sometimes. You get in the middle of certain stages of parenting and you think we will never get beyond this stage. And that's why we need people to speak into our lives and say, no, no, this goes so quickly, you will make it. Because when you're in the midst of it, you literally can't see the end. You don't know how this thing is going to ever come to an end. We've been talking about, and we began last week specifically, talking about God Father, Son, Holy Spirit, co-equal as God, co-eternal as God. For God to be eternal means that he never had a beginning. He has always perfectly existed as God. And yet the flip side of that is on the other end, he will always continue to exist as God. There will never be a time that he will stop being God. And he is also by his power and by his plan, created us for eternity. 
which means that as those who have been created in the image of God, there's a sense in which we can say that things will never end. The way we experience them now will end. There will be changes, there will be transitions, there will be endings to certain things But in the sense that things will never end, they will continue to eternity, that is one of those truths that we run into in Scripture. When we use the word end, E-N-D, we usually think of the termination of something, something coming to a complete stop. In Scripture, the word end is often the word, the Greek word telos, T-E-L-O-S, is kind of the English rendering of it. But, But it's the idea of a goal, or a purpose, or something working towards something, not necessarily the end in the sense of stopping and not continuing anymore. And so what that means is, when we think about God being eternal, always existing, and the fact that we're created in his image, and so we will also experience eternity, it means that right now, we're living at the end of the beginning, not the beginning of the end. We're living at the end of the beginning, not the beginning of the end. And and I'm not trying to be cute and play with words there. And I'm sure not trying to downplay the pain of death. Because our church, in the last few weeks, and maybe you in your own life, you've faced the reality of death. And death is a real thing. We don't hide our eyes from that. We don't pretend that it doesn't exist. We don't pretend that it's not painful. But what we acknowledge is, is that it's only the end of the beginning. It's not the beginning of the end. That God, because he is eternal, and because he's created us in his image, he has created us for eternity. And what we need to understand is, why is that the case? Why does it matter? And what do we need to do about it? How does that impact our lives? I want to show you in Colossians chapter 1, how this truth comes about through the person of Jesus Christ. Look back there in Colossians chapter 1, starting in verse 18. It says, He, speaking of Jesus Christ, God the Son, He is the head of the body, the church. So the first way that we realize that we're living at the end of the beginning, that this story is just getting started, is it says that Christ is the head of the body, the church. The body is in ancient thought, could refer to several different things. This word here could refer to the entire universe. It could refer to this idea of a totality. Uh, A guy named Plato, not Plato like you play with, but P-L-A-T-O. Plato would use this word. A lot of the ancient writers would use this word to refer to the, the universe, to the totality of things. But here, Paul is using it in reference to the church, That Christ is the head of a body, of a group of people brought together. The key word here seems to be the word unity. That even though we exist as individuals, we exist as this unity, this body that God has brought together. And specifically, he's brought it together through Jesus Christ. The reason the church exists, the reason we gather together, the reason we live as the church is because of Jesus. That God is establishing his people who will continue to be his people for all eternity. Which means that it matters that you engage with the church. And I want to be careful how I say this because I've told you before, 
I probably edge toward liberal when it comes to guilting you into church attendance. I I don't want to play that game. I'm not here to guilt, guilt you into church attendance. What I am here to say is based on the truth of God's word and based specifically on who Jesus Christ is as the head of the body of the church, it matters that we engage with the church. One of the most countercultural things you can do is to say we're going to be a part of a church as the body of Christ. We are going to engage as families, as individuals, not meaning we're going to participate in all the rituals. We're not going to be a part of an institution. We are going to be a part of the body of Christ, functioning together for the glory of God. You may be here, and and God has done something very unique in our church where there are a lot of people who are on their way back to following Christ. They, They were a part of a church growing up, They went away for a while, and they're starting to come back to a church. Many of you have experienced that before. You may have gone away from church because you were hurt by the church institution. And it is hard to re-engage. It's hard to get back and get involved again. It's hard to do those type of things. But remember, you're re-engaging as part of the body of Christ. We're not asking you to reconnect with an institution that exists for its own good. We're asking you to remember who Christ is and what he has done in creating this body. The statistics are off the charts about how many kids leave church after they graduate from high school and after they go into college, after they graduate from college. What do we do with that? How do we explain that? My kids are still very young. And so I speak carefully into this. I I haven't walked this path, and so I want to be careful in saying this. But here's something that that I do think that I've seen as a youth minister and what I've seen as a pastor. If church is something that your kids do, they will leave. If church is something that your kids are, they will stay. Let me kind of unpack that and back that up. If attending church... Going to religious service is something you've told your kids to do. They'll find something else to do. But if being a part of the body of Christ, if engaging with the church is who they are, then they will continue to do that because that is part of their identity. That is who they have been shaped to be. Which means that our role as parents and our role as grandparents is not that we would teach our kids church is something that we do and then we leave it behind. It's that we are engaging with church because we are called to be a part of the body of Christ. And if they see it that way, then that will prepare them to continue to live that out after high school and after college and after they have kids and as their kids grow up and get involved in activities. And, And so what we're coming back to is this idea that God has prepared his people for the end of the beginning, that they will always live as his people. And so we're wanting to be trained in that now as the church. Why is that so important? Because if you look back in verse 18, it says that Christ is the head of the body. That word head was also kind of a a word that was used for multiple things in the ancient world. But it seems like the key word is the word dependence. I tried to find a word that would kind of fit there. The best word I can come up with is dependence. That as the body, we are completely dependent on Christ as the head. Which means that ultimately, he is always the leader of the church. Not me, not a group of deacons, not a group that are called the admin council. Jesus Christ is always the head and leader 
and Lord of the church, of his body. We are dependent upon him for existence, and we are dependent upon him for direction. And it also means that as we exist as a church, we're not dependent upon me. If First Baptist is going to continue to exist as a Christ-honoring church, and, and this is one of the things that, that scares me, frankly, as a pastor, that we would be dependent upon me. We're not dependent on me. We're not dependent on Peggy or Corey or James or any other individual. We are ultimately dependent on Christ. That is why we gather. That is why we come together. That is the source that all of us have. And as the body underneath the head, another reality that comes from that is there is no hierarchy within the body. We simply exist as the body underneath the head. We talked a couple of weeks ago about how our understanding of God relates to those who are a part of a Mormon faith or a part of a Jehovah's Witness faith. You may be here this morning, and, and that's your faith background. And I would love to hear your perspective and hear more things from you on this, and I hope you hear me speaking uh, respectfully about this. But one of the things we find as we compare what does it mean for us to be the church of God and what does it mean for these other groups to understand that Within the Jehovah's Witness faith, there is a group of people that go by different names, but they're usually called the 144,000. They're the anointed class. They're the 144,000. They are a group of people existing within the church who will be able to live in heaven and judge and in some way rule over the world. Now, there's a lot of controversy you could probably go and talk to a Jehovah's Witness right now, and they would tell you there's a lot of controversy about who makes up that 144,000. Because presumably, just about everybody does that you talk to, and yet you realize at some point, 144,000 fills up pretty fast. And so within the group, there's this one group that kind of has a higher standing, and then everyone else will function under that. In Mormon faith, there's something similar to this, but not quite the same. In Mormon faith, there's the idea of the Melchizedekian, I know it's a huge word, but it comes from the book of Hebrews, the Melchizedekian priesthood, that there are a group of people within the Mormon faith who are especially valiant and especially strong in their faith, and and they will make up a higher group. They will make up a higher class in some sense within that church, even having the opportunity to go on and be gods after this life because of their place within that group. Let me just be straightforward as I can. Within the Christian faith, as we understand God as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, there is no such hierarchy within the body of Christ. There is Christ who is their head, and then there is us who make up the body of Christ. That's it. Unfortunately, unfortunately over the years, we've created our own version of the hierarchy, and it's called the clergy and the laity. And it's just not biblical. Now hear me out here, okay? It is very true that in Scripture we see God giving different people different roles. There is a clergy in that sense. In the sense that God calls certain people to shepherd and to teach and to provide leadership and to provide some guidance. But in no way does the clergy have greater value or greater spiritual worth than anyone else within the church. And somehow we just have to come back around and come to grips with that as as the body of Christ. Which means that 
I don't have any special prayer power compared to you. And I have no special power to talk to your kids about Jesus that you don't already have. And I have no special power to be able to be closer to God somehow than you have to be closer to God. I have a particular role to play in the church, but every one of us equally make up the body of Christ. Which goes back around to saying you're not dependent on me, and I'm not reverse dependent on you. That's not the right psychology term, but you figure out what I'm going for here. That I'm not dependent upon you, that we are ultimately dependent on Christ. So why does this matter? It leads us to the next part of verse 18. He is the head of the body, the church. And then he says, he is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead. That he might in everything have the supremacy. So why can we say that the church will continue? We live in a doomsday culture where people are always afraid something is going to come to the end and people look at the American church and they say it's going to come to an end. The church isn't going to come to an end. Certain versions of the church may come to an end. Certain local churches may stop meeting. But Christ's body will never come to an end. And the reason is because of the resurrection. Because of the resurrection, death, which is the final enemy, has been completely defeated. And so because of that, Christ's body, the church, will continue forever dependent upon his power. A couple of phrases here to look back at. Beginning there in the middle of verse 18, he is the beginning. Now you might say, Owen, you just said we're talking about the end of the beginning, and now Christ is called the beginning here. What it means is that he is the beginning of a new time, a new humanity almost that is being established. Some of you live through the days of the new world order. Some people think we're still in the middle of a new world order. There is a sense in which scripture speaks of a new world order only in the sense that with the coming of Christ and his death and his resurrection, he is the beginning of God making all things new. There's a phrase that we use when we read scripture, and it's the phrase, already, not yet. And I meant to put a picture on the screen, but I forgot it, so I'm going to illustrate it for you like this. Pretend that the pulpit is the time in which we live right now, okay? This is the beginning of all things. When God created all things perfectly, then people fell into sin and began to rebel against him. They rebelled against him. And then at some point, and we know when that point came, Christ came, the Son of God, defeated sin, defeated death through the cross and the resurrection. And we know that we live at the end of the beginning and all things are continuing into a perfect eternity. But we live in between the times, so to speak. We live at a time of transition when people still face evil. When people still die, when sin still exists in the world, we live at this time where it's true that Jesus has already defeated sin and he's already defeated death, but we have not yet seen the completion of that or the end of that. So we live in this in-between time where you still go to funerals and you cry 
and you mourn, and yet at that same funeral, you talk about the hope of Christ. And so people look at us, and we look strange because we're crying and we're mourning, and we're also talking about eternal hope. And they say, how can you do both of those at the same time? It's because we live right here. We live after the time that we have seen Jesus Christ defeat sin and death, and we live before the time when all of that is going to come to completion. We live in between the times in this middle ground. And it's difficult because you live in households that are wrecked by sin. And we live in places where loved ones die unexpectedly. And we live in situations where people seem to be going the right direction and then they go off another direction. We think, God, how are we going to make it through this time? How are we going to survive? And he says, remember that you're at the end of the beginning. Remember that Christ has already been victorious through the resurrection, that we have hope because of that. After it says the beginning there in verse 18, it says that he is the firstborn from among the dead. If you have your phone still open or your Bible still open, if you look back up to verse um, 15, if you look back up to Colossians 1, verse 15, it says, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. So he is sovereign. We talked about how the word firstborn means all-powerful and supreme. He is supreme and sovereign over creation. But then look ahead to verse 18. You see that same word again. He is also the firstborn from among the dead. He is completely victorious over death. I want to show you some more verses that pertain to this. Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 and 15. Since the children, meaning humanity, have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity so that by his death he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. Because Jesus died and then rose again, we don't have to be afraid of death. That is one of the greatest things that we have an opportunity to proclaim to the world around us. One of your best opportunities to speak to someone gently and powerfully about who Jesus is is when they begin to talk about their fear of death. Now granted, you have to know someone pretty well for them to begin to share something like that with you. But even guys and their strongest moments will come to a point where they often will begin to talk about, I know that my life is going to end at some point, and I wonder what happens next. And that's a chance not to speak in a manipulative way, but just to let them know, I can tell you. I can tell you where my hope is found, and I can tell you why I have that hope, and it's based solely on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Look at these next verses from 1 Corinthians 15. If Christ has not been raised, in other words, if the resurrection is a myth and a lie and something that we make up to make us feel better, if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless and so is your faith. I remember as a middle schooler the first time I ran into to that verse. It was one of those verses in the Bible that completely rocked my world. Because if we gathered here this morning to make ourselves feel better or to participate in a religious ritual 
and it has no grounding, if there was no resurrection, if it was just made up, then in my world, I should be out playing golf right now. That's pretty much what that means. Like, this is a completely useless gathering if we're not gathered here because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Because the resurrection is our identity and our power and the reason that we have hope. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, Paul says. And he is the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. In other words, because he has been raised from the dead, we also have that hope. We know that that will come about. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. And then in verse 22, it says, For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. But each in turn, Christ the firstfruits, the firstborn over dead, from the dead, is what Paul said, then when he comes, those who belong to him, then the word end, then the end will come. When he hands over the kingdom to God the Father, after he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power. What those verses from 1 Corinthians remind us of is that the reason that we have hope and the reason that the church will never end is because we are based upon the power and the hope of the resurrection. And then finally, look what happens in verses 19 and 20. Verse 19 For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. So Christ was fully God, not partially, didn't come halfway, he was fully God. Verse 20, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Verses 19 and 20 are this incredible combination because it talks of Jesus as being fully God. And the result of that is that he gave his life. By dying on the cross, he gave perfect peace. He reconciled all things. But let me just tell you, this verse brings up one of the most difficult theological things that that I know of in Scripture. Because it says, through him... To reconcile to himself all things. And here's the question. Does that mean that everyone will ultimately be saved? Because if the word reconcile there is the word for salvation, through him to save to himself, to reconcile, to make right with himself all things, that seems to imply that everyone will ultimately be saved. Does that make sense? You see how that comes out? There, there are theological ideas of universal reconciliation, that people talk about heaven and hell, but in the end, God will kind of sideline the hell thing, and he'll make everything right, and everybody will ultimately be with him. You get something like this in Jehovah's Witness theology, though it comes out a little bit differently with the idea that you won't go to hell, but you'll just be annihilated or destroyed. In Mormon theology and Mormon thought, there are just different levels of heaven. And you might be at a lower level, but it'll still be okay and it'll still be good. It's just not as good as the higher levels. In traditional Christian theology, those who have been made right with God will live with him forever And those who have rejected God and refused that salvation, who have not made that commitment, 
will be separated from God. And so you can see where a verse where it says, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, becomes a very difficult theological issue. What do you do when you hit difficult places like this in Scripture? Here's the first thing I would tell you to do. Be careful about giving simplistic, easy, off-the-cuff answers. The reason I've made a big deal out of this is because I don't want you to hear me trying to give some simple, off-the-cuff, oh, it's not that big a deal. If we really say that studying Scripture is important, we're going to run into some places that, frankly, are hard to understand and are difficult to deal with. And so at that moment, let's engage with those together. Let's not push them to the side as much as I wanted to stop the sermon this morning before I got to this this point. We've got to deal with these things. So how do you begin to deal with them? One of the strategies, one of the things that we want to do at times like this is we are able to understand Scripture in reference to Scripture as a whole. This has been a tradition throughout the history of the church, a way of reading Scripture, is if you run into places and you're trying to make sense of them, you can look at those individual pieces in light of the whole. And so you look across the story of Scripture and you look at other passages and you say, are there other places in Scripture where it seems like Some people will not be saved, and other people will be saved. And and the reality is, yes, we do see that. And you say, you look at other places in Scripture, are there other places where it looks like everybody is going to be saved? No, you don't find very many places like that. And so that kind of provides a guide for how to deal with these passages. Another thing you do is you look at the individual words, and you say, do I understand what that word means? And the key word here is, is the word reconcile. The word reconcile here doesn't have the idea of personal salvation behind it. What the word reconcile means here is it's the idea of God setting everything right. The idea of God putting everything into harmony. This almost the idea of justice fits behind the word. One of the commentaries that I was reading this week said, reconciliation must be defined in these verses as all things being put into proper relation to Christ. So it's not that everyone and everything will be saved. It's that God, through the cross, has destroyed, has defeated everything that would be set against him. That we've reached a point in where, because of the power of the cross, God has set everything the way that it should be. That those who trust in Christ will find ultimate salvation and that those who turn from Christ will be separated from God. And that is a hard reality to come to. And and I am well aware of that. that We have this emotional tug that says, no, that can't be right. And yet we have the truth and the power of Scripture that says God has made all things new and he will make all things right. Let me show you some verses that, that relate to this. Philippians chapter 2, I think, helps us understand this passage. Therefore, God exalted Christ to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. The way we understand Colossians 1, 20, is in reference to Philippians 2 right here. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. In other words, there will come a time when everyone 
we'll have to recognize the victory of Christ through the cross. But not everyone will come to that place willingly and in ultimate submission and worship to God. But everyone will make that confession. Here's what we see in Hebrews chapter 9. Just as people are destined to die once and after that to face judgment, so Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many and he will appear a second time not to bear sin but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. So what we see from the pages of scripture is not live however you want in this life and then there'll be a second chance after death. What we find is This life is a gift from God. And Christ died so that we can be made right with him, so that we can worship him, and so that we can live for him, with him forever. But now is the time for salvation. Now is the time to turn to him. Because we are all appointed to die once and then to face judgment. And that's a heavy word. That's a hard word. And, and And I don't speak that as my own opinion. Because if it was me and my own opinion, I probably wouldn't say those things. But I do believe in the truth of God's word at this point. And I do believe that God has made a way for salvation through Jesus Christ. And so we are called to that. We, we are called to be reconciled and made right with him. And then the question is, what does it mean to be made right with God? What, what difference does it make in the way I live my life? Look at this last verse, and we're going to wrap up with this. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, 19. In Christ, here's that word again, God was making all things right. He was reconciling the world to himself. So the only way we are reconciled to God is through Christ. Not counting their trespasses against them. And then look at the end of that. And entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Which means that if we realize that we are living at the end of the beginning and we realize what it means to be made right with God, the greatest opportunity we have is to proclaim that reconciliation to others, to be ambassadors of that, to to share that and display that to others, to let them know God has made all things right through Christ. And we will all stand before him, and we desire to stand before him as Father. It is a great thing to recognize that God is judge. But it is a far greater thing to know him as father. To know that he has created us and that he has made a way for salvation and that he desires us to live fully for him and with him for eternity. I don't know how God might be working in your life. Maybe you've faced loss recently in your family or with your friends. Maybe you've come to a point in life that you're just trying to think, what is this all about? How am I going to make it through this season in life? Maybe your family's hurting. Maybe you're going through a difficult time in your job. I I don't know where you are right now. But what I want you to know is that God has made a way for life, and he has made a way for salvation, and it's found through Jesus Christ. And we want to respond to him. We want to respond to him with our whole lives. Here in just a minute, we're going to come back around and we're going to sing that song, Jesus Paid It All. If God's working in your life in a particular way and you need someone to pray with, we will have people down here for you to pray with. There are people around you in the balcony that you can turn to and pray with them. You may need to just stand right where you are and say, God, 
Remind me, remind me of the hope that I have in Christ because Jesus paid it all. Let's pray together.